Satoshi had to do so much to win our trust, right? Everything open source, everything with fair warning, full disclosure, you know, create the most auditable monetary system ever, and then leave the project. What other digital asset or cryptocurrency has done even one-tenth the things that Satoshi did to convince us that this was a legitimate and fair thing? I mean, I haven't seen anything remotely approximating that. Hello there. How are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into today's interview, I do have a quick message from my show sponsors. And this show is brought to you by BlockFi. And you can now earn a $250 bonus in Bitcoin when you sign up with BlockFi, as they have recently launched their BlockFi Rewards Visa signature card. Now, for people in the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, the BlockFi Rewards credit card is the easiest way for you to earn Bitcoin because you get 1.5% back in Bitcoin on every card purchase and there is no annual fee. It is the smartest way to stack sats with Bitcoin rewards on every purchase. You can also earn 2% in Bitcoin on every purchase over $50,000 of annual spend and you can also get 3.5% back in Bitcoin during your first three months of card ownership. But please do make sure you check out the terms for this. Now, if you're interested in finding out more, then please head over to blockfi.com forward slash Peter, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com forward slash P-E-T-E-R. And next up, we have Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now, a hardware wallet allows you to take custody of your Bitcoin, and I have been a Ledger customer since way back in early 2017. And the Nano S I bought back then, yep, I'm still using that bad boy now. Ledger makes it easy for you to safely manage your Bitcoin using their Ledger Live software, which interfaces with your device. And you can even connect your Nano S to your Android phone to manage your Bitcoin on the go. If you want to find out more, please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. And this show is brought to you by Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I'm only buying. I have not sold a single sat through Gemini because we are in a bull market. And you know what? I just don't want to sell my Bitcoin. I'm a hodler. You're a hodler, right? Now, I have been using the Gemini app for buying the dips, but I also set up a DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin, and I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing, all through one clear, attractive interface. And Gemini are now running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. If you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD. That is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash WBD. Next up, we have Compass Mining. And you know what? They are not just a sponsor. I am also a customer of theirs, and I am now mining Bitcoin. And you know what? I've been mining for three months now. I've already paid off one of my S19s, and I'm close to paying off the second one. It is so good to be back mining. And you know what? I just really love these guys. Compass makes mining accessible to everyone. And as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. It was so easy to get onboarded, and now anyone can mine Bitcoin with Compass. You just pick your machines, choose your hosting facility, and they will do everything else for you. If you want to find out more, please head over to compassmining.io, which is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-G dot I-O. Morning, Nick. Hello, Peter. Nice to do this in person. It's our first one. It's our first one. After eight previous remote interviews, we get to sit down in person. Here I know. Here in Miami. That was blowing my mind. But this might as well be remote because you're so far away. <laughs> yeah, that was the dilemma. Otherwise, we'd have been 
if we put it the other side, we've been super close. This is like a medieval banquet or something. <laughs> this is what I had with Weinstein. We were about this far apart. Travis in the middle. That's why we, how we justified it. We did have a big discussion last night about this. Anyway, man, uh, you all settled here in Miami. Yes, sir. In a free state. It is. It's quite free. Yeah. I mean, we're not actually in Miami. I know. You're, I, I was know. complaining about that. I know. We're in, we're in Hollywood. That's right, yeah. Without the films. We have a Hollywood in Florida. So listen, there's a whole bunch of stuff I want to talk to you about which you're aware of. Um, my brother works with me now, and he's going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. Uh, and it's, it's been really interesting to watch him soak it all up and ask questions. And that one of the things he keeps coming back to me, he's been saying, is like, okay, where does this all lead? Like, okay, because I think uh, over the last year, Bitcoin has become like this whole much bigger thing now. Especially with El Salvador and what MicroStrategy has done, and some of the predictions people have about Bitcoin is coming true. But uh, he's been questioning to me, and we've been having a lot of conversations about, okay, what does this mean? You know, next year, five years, ten years. And uh, I really, obviously, like and respect you, and wanted to dive into some of these things for you with you. So uh, I've got a lot to discuss, as you know. I'm ready to to make some wild, unfounded prognostications. Let's do it. Okay, so I just starting point really with you is just to find out a little bit about how, like how do you taking everything of the last year, not just with Bitcoin. I mean, a lot has happened with Bitcoin. I I don't think any of us saw what MicroStrategy did with coming, and I never saw Tesla putting Bitcoin on the balance sheet, and I certainly didn't see El Salvador. Uh, so much has happened in this last year. Like, how do you take it all in? I mean, we wouldn't be here if we weren't like wild optimists, right? Mm -hmm. So, we, to a certain extent, I feel like we did expect these things to happen. We didn't know what precisely would happen. We didn't know the nature of it, but uh, we kind of figured something crazy would happen, right? Um, I, I certainly did. I mean, I didn't expect that a business analytics company from Tyson's Virginia would buy 120,000 bitcoins, but it doesn't surprise me that what they did, right? Um, and the nation state angle with El Salvador, I didn't see El Salvador legalizing Bitcoin or making it a currency or mandating its usage. <laughs> uh, but it doesn't surprise me now, really. And I know this is a real Captain Hindsight moment. It doesn't surprise me that this is the progression. This was the progression, is a necessary progression for any monetary good that's going to reach global stature. This is the path it has to take. If you get from zero to where gold is today, there's hundreds of millions of households that own gold. Virtually every major central bank owns gold, um, and you know it's just a, a you know absolutely mainstream savings device. So if Bitcoin's going to get there, it'll have to be acquired by governments and corporations. Uh, so we couldn't know how it was going to happen or how quickly it would happen. Certainly, the acceleration has surprised me, but I tend to think this was Bitcoin's destiny. Realizing it's it's destiny. Yeah, let's uh, let's talk about the regulatory side of things because that lens has always been on Bitcoin, continues to be on Bitcoin. Um, obviously, within El Salvador, they have little to no regulation with regards to Bitcoin. No taxation of Bitcoin. It's a very pro-Bitcoin country. The U.S. compared to where I am in Europe is fairly pro-Bitcoin to a certain extent, and you have specific people within Congress who are pro, some people are against it. But it it feels like we're way beyond any idea that the US government would ban Bitcoin. 
We do have some slightly different views in Europe. Sweden wants to ban Bitcoin because of <laughs> because of the mining threat, even though uh, I think it's one of the largest energy companies. I'm not sure if it's a state energy company, but one of the largest energy companies said, no, Bitcoin is really good for energy. Uh, but Europe seems to be kind of far, quite, quite behind the US in terms of Bitcoin. And then obviously the other side, we have countries like you know, China and Bolivia where Bitcoin is banned. Where do you see regulation heading? Yeah, I, I mean, I... It's funny that you know we're we're nervous about regulation. I mean, uh, to to ban Bitcoin isn't to demonetize it, right? Mm-hmm. When uh, when gold was banned in the U.S. or private ownership was banned, gold wasn't demonetized. It continued to hold its value. It just became more difficult to get access to. Uh, it's the same thing with Bitcoin. I mean, Bitcoin still has a monetary value in China, where um, transacting in Bitcoin is. Uh, Illegal or discouraged. Um, so, I mean, in the U.S., Bitcoin has been pretty well understood for almost a decade now. Uh, the IRS understands it, treats it as property. FinCEN understands it very well. The Treasury, uh, the SEC, you know, they don't have much to do with Bitcoin because they generally treat it as a commodity. Um, the CFTC regulates uh, certain markets uh, that you know trade Bitcoin, especially derivatives. Um, what could happen would be that the exchanges fall under more, you know, more stringent measures. Uh, I kind of expect that to happen. I think the major spot cryptocurrency exchanges in the U.S. Uh, will be specifically carved out by legislators and will be subject to tougher rules, especially as it pertains to new token offerings, anything like that, things that kind of resemble securities in a way. But Bitcoin doesn't resemble security at all. And we have you know, a very hawkish SEC commissioner who is ambitious and he's determined to make his mark right, on the crypto industry. But whenever he talks about Bitcoin, he tends to carve it out and say, yeah, Bitcoin to me uh, you know, doesn't have a single entity that administers it. It doesn't, uh, you know, it doesn't have this, this strong nexus of centralization. So he, he carves out Bitcoin in the taxonomy as compared to novel tokens and things like that. So from a regulatory perspective in the U.S., it's very positive, I think. The thing that would make me a little nervous would be um, a regime whereby the major exchanges and custodians are treated under uh, federal, uh, new federal regulation, you know, which would make it more difficult to compete as an exchange or brokerage or custodian. And uh, would entrench, uh, some, you know, a handful of larger firms, which would make it easier to regulate and easier to, you know, uh, 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 ask ask those exchanges to sort of de-anonymize their users or, or pass really tough KYC and stuff like that. I think that could happen for sure. Yeah, one of the things that seems to be a little bit give a little bit of protection to Bitcoin now, not a lot, but there seems to be a growing number of people within Congress who have an interest in Bitcoin. Um, obviously, the darling for all of us is Cynthia Lummis, who's been a you know, vocal supporter of Bitcoin for quite some time, but we've even seen people like Ted Cruz, and now there's like a growing number of uh, hopefuls who are looking to you know, get a seat in Congress. Um, we've been reached out to by people who are campaigning or on the campaign trail who all seem to be supporting Bitcoin. Do you think this is a hack, or do you think these people have gen- genuinely... Uh, Got an interest in Bitcoin, and uh, the reason I ask if it's a hack because 
if you become a vocal supporter of Bitcoin, you suddenly have this whole community that gets behind you. Ironically, a group who are you know, historically perhaps anti-state, but at the same time, it is happening. What do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, I, I've had the the pleasure of meeting some of these representatives and senators that uh, you know espouse uh, Bitcoin ideals, and uh, I don't know if they're politicians, but they seem pretty genuine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, those varying degrees of sort of endorsement, um, but uh, there's are absolutely growing numbers. There are growing numbers. Um, obviously, on the Senate side, you, we've made a lot of strides this year. It's not just Cynthia Lummis mm-hmm. banging the drum anymore. Um, you know, she's been joined by Ted Cruz, who put together a very impressive defense of Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining in Austin early this year. Um, she's been joined by, I want to say, Ron Wyden is also uh, a pro Bitcoin senator. There's others. Um, maybe I'm getting mixed up there. O- on the representative side, there, um, you know, especially on, on the Republican side, you, you know, you, you look at the, the the Financial Services Committee in the House. Um, there's a number of representatives that are overtly pro Bitcoin. And um, there's a number of hopefuls in both the House and the Senate that are extremely pro Bitcoin. Um, so I don't think, you know, some of it might be contrived, some of it might be playing to the Bitcoin demographic, but um, it's, it's, you know, a genuine movement. Um, and uh, I don't know what the estimate is precisely, whether it's 20 million or 40 million Americans that own Bitcoin and digital assets, but it's a very material amount. Do you think there's uh, any risk that Bitcoin becomes a partisan issue in that it feels like there's certainly more people on the Republican side who are into Bitcoin and support Bitcoin? Um, I interviewed Erica Rose, who is a you know, Democratic hopeful who supports Bitcoin, but um, the US has a, a very nice like neat ability to make any issue something to argue about uh, across party lines. But is there, do you think there is an opportunity to make this nonpartisan? It's going to be a challenge. Yeah, it's very lopsided right now. There are representatives on the Democratic side that are pro Bitcoin uh, and that acknowledge the innovation that's happening and the importance. Ro Khanna in California, progressive, is a, is a good example. And I know that's a difficult fight for him because his constituents, uh, whenever he tweets about Bitcoin, his constituents get pretty upset. Uh, Darren Soto down here in Florida. On the Democratic side, uh, is, is, has espoused a pro Bitcoin position. I think you've even seen Eric Swalwell, um, you know, sign on to some of these open letters, uh, espousing kind of a pro crypto stance. So they exist for sure. And um, I think the last hurdle for a lot of these people is going to be the environmental questions. And it's just a matter of making the facts known to them. I think the reality is less worse. Than is represented, uh, but yeah, certainly some progressives will never. No matter how much data or information you present to them, they will never endorse or acknowledge Bitcoin as a valid thing, uh, because a you know there's this neo Malthusian trend going around now, whereby energy uh, consumption is is believed to be morally bad, and so there's not a lot you can do that. To B, there's this indignation that you know libertarians or, or Bitcoiners generally, uh, you know, made a lot of money in a short period of time, and uh, C, 
there's a desire in some parts to wholly politicize uh, financial services and um, create kind of a choke point on steroids by installing a CBDC, a central bank digital currency, which the Fed uh, and you know the federal government controls and surveils really tightly and uses to exert more granular control over society and potentially implement uh, progressive ideals through the mechanism of the, of the currency, which is a power that the government does not have today, but I think would like to have, uh, which is certainly the stance of someone like an Elizabeth Warren. So regardless of how much you stress the financial inclusion of Bitcoin or even stable coins, she will resent that because her objective is to obtain just new, fundamentally higher levels of control over society at large through the mechanism of, of your currency. And so there's a certain set of, of uh, policymakers that will never, uh, never get on the Bitcoin train for that reason. Yeah, I find Elizabeth Warren one of the most disappointing ones in that a uh, few years back when uh, Mnuchin was being questioned in preparation for his role working in the government. Uh, she went hard on him. She went hard on Wall Street when she went hard on the relationship between the government and Wall Street. And I felt like she perhaps would be an ally, <laughs> a loose ally, potentially no, Bitcoin, but she's turned on it. Yeah, it's the enemy of my enemy is my enemy yeah. in that case, right? Uh, she, she, it's not that um, you know she's against banking and would thus be in favor of Bitcoin. Is that she's against banking because um, you know there's a strain of thought which is that banks should be effectively nationalized and uh, or or you know commercial banking should be eliminated and the public sector, the government, should take over. Uh, this was evident in the writings of the OCC nominee Saul Omarova, who thankfully is not going to go through, but. Uh, you know, if you read her papers, it's the same thing. It's we should kind of eliminate commercial banking or sideline it because that's a buffer between the government and uh, and the people, and um, and go direct and give people Fed accounts, you know, accounts at the Fed, and then we can determine, uh, you know, who who's able to spend money on things and and what and when, and you know, precisely determine how much money is in the economy and how deep negative interest rates go and things like that. So you know. As far as I can tell, that seems to be the, the final objective here. Um, and, and Bitcoin stands in the way of that. Well, the, the logic of that is very anti-American. I agree. I, I certainly think so. But uh, when has that ever stopped them? Yeah. Uh, you, you wrote a piece recently about the era of free banking, right? Yeah. I, free banking has uh, kind of um, come up a lot recently. Um, Warren has referred to it. Gensler has referred to it. Members of the Fed have referred to it. Um, always in a pejorative, negative context. In the U.S., we had a period of somewhat unencumbered banking. It wasn't, uh, you know, wholly free. Uh, but uh, they call it sort of the wildcat era, and they've been using it to demonize stable coins because they uh, allege that stable coins are similar to the free banking era we had in sort of the 1830s to 1860s. And um, I don't, you know, you can quibble about the analogy, but their point is uh, there's this view that the free banking era was characterized by bank failures when they were somewhat unregulated, not fully unregulated, and uh, it's, you know, it's used to delegitimize the private issuance of currency effectively. You know, the problem is that 
the free banking era in the U.S. was not a truly free era. Uh, banks weren't really allowed to branch to um, branch out geographically and diversify their sort of depositor base, right? So if you were a bank in Indiana and your deposits were, came from farmers and there was a bad harvest that year, uh, you know maybe the bank would fail. And so there were reasons you had these bank failures. Additionally, the banks had to hold securities issued by states in many instances. And uh, you know they were forced to do so, and so that was also a cause of the bank failures. So there are valid reasons, aside from just um, you know what are co- commonly alleged to be the main reasons around just you know private institutions being irresponsible, why these banks did fail in the era. Now, if you look overseas, if you look to Canada during that era, or if you look to Scotland, actually, for instance, you had very functional free banking episodes, which suggests that the private issuance of banknotes can work and can be a stable regime. Um, you know, and you don't strictly need a central bank. Uh, you know, the, these episodes were stable, you had strong growth, you had minimal financial panics. So the focus solely on US-based free banking by our current policymakers, in my view, is kind of ahistorical. And, uh, and it's used to unfairly malign stable coins, which in many ways do resemble the way that free banks operated. It's, it's kind of ironic, really. And, 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 you know, one of the things I was talking about, I had a call with my brother this morning, was he was saying that in, a, in an era where you have so much control by government over the economy, there's um, so much central planning and controlling the economy, and uh, usually very anti monopolistic, that they do want a monopoly on money. Um, any threat to their monopoly on money is, you know, is, as you've talked about here, they're using free, the free banking era. Uh, yeah, it's one of the great ironies that you know, money is the one thing where monopoly is, is believed to be completely acceptable and where it's alleged that the private sector can never create a product that's as good as the government. Now, in what other realm would you say uh, state-produced product is better? Um, than what the private sector can come up with. And if you look at what's happening right now with stable coins, for instance, uh, not to, you know, I know Bitcoiners don't like it when I talk about stable coins. I am. But if you, if you look at stable coins, they're digital kind of dollar equivalents. They work, they settle immediately. There's 140 billion of them, 120 billion of them floating around completely issued by the private sector that is a digital cash product has you know and and meanwhile you have governments the world over trying to make those cbdc's and and you know being very slow in doing so so that's a great example of the private sector filling a gap filling a need that um, the market demanded where the state has not created an equivalent product and will they ever create a product that has the same privacy and transactional Freedom assurances, as the private sector did, and my guess is no. You know, will we ever get a CBDC that actually resembles physical cash in terms of settling immediately, being private, um, upholding your free right to transact with whomever you choose? I don't think so. I've never seen a central banker put forth a CBDC model that uh, you know doesn't have some sort of embedded KYC or anti-money laundering feature. So this is a great example of the private sector is already doing something that we know governments will not do. 
Yeah, and Alex Gladstein has talked uh, quite often about being very supportive of stable coins. And, and I know, as you said, it's not hugely popular with Bitcoins because sometimes they exist on alternative protocols that uh, we're not meant to uh, <laughs> support or be fans of. But he's talked about in specific countries, you know, I can't remember, but let's, I'll just pick out like Palestine or Lebanon, countries where there is no, where there's a poor local currency, currencies collapsing. That these stable coins have been a lifeline for people. They've given, you know, because Bitcoin isn't always suitable in that scenario because uh, you need a stable currency in the short term. And so these stable coins have been very useful. There's no contradiction between uh, being a supporter of Bitcoin and stable coins. No. I don't believe so. I think they are different products. Bitcoin is kind of an unimpeachable thing, it's no one's liability. That's what's special about it. Uh, it's similar to gold in that respect. Gold is no one's liability. No one has to do anything for your gold to have value, right? Mm-hmm. Same thing with Bitcoin. Um, now, stable coins are someone's liability, right? There is an entity that has to sort of um, offer you uh, something in return for your stable coin, or there's an entity that has to manage an algorithmic peg. There's some residual risk in the system. That doesn't mean it's a bad system, it just means that it's managed. Um, what we are seeing is a harmonization between Bitcoin and stablecoins, though, and this is overlooked. Why do stablecoins even exist? Because Bitcoin built and financed the infrastructure that they rely on, wallets, exchanges, all of that financial infrastructure that's mature now. Um, what do stablecoins trade against? Well, Bitcoin in many cases, right? Because Bitcoin is this monetary substrate that is ubiquitous now. That makes the market for stablecoins. Some stablecoins are issued against Bitcoin, or they're backed with Bitcoin. So Bitcoin is kind of adopting this collateral, you know, reserve asset role, and then stablecoins are increasingly the medium of exchange. And that's kind of where this is going, if I had to make a guess. Bitcoin is this reserve asset, this, um, this monetary medium that can extinguish any debt, and it's no one's liability. And then stablecoins is a slightly more risky, but very much more convenient transactional medium uh, because there's no, uh, you know, um, from a tax perspective, for instance, transacting in something that's quote unquote stable um, is is advantageous. People uh, still use the do- the dollar as their uh, their unit of account. That's not going to change. So that's one way to get to this world where Bitcoin is an important dominant and major reserve asset, but we still accept that people are willing to transact in dollars, and they, in fact, prefer to transact in dollars. And I see that as fundamentally more likely than a world where we re-denominate everything in Satoshis and transact in Satoshis. Okay, I, I agree. Um, and I was, obviously, you know, as with Michael say that yesterday, this is something he's been talking about a lot. And... Uh, he talked about this in a couple of interviews I've been out on Twitter and I've seen the reactions of some people is like, no, we're here to end the Fed, we're here to end central banking, we're here to replace the dollar. Um, and I don't find that logical in the short term. We can talk about hyper-Bitcoinization later on and decide whether we agree that's something that can or will happen. But right now in the short term, people need a stable currency in the short term, they need a store of wealth long term. Yeah. I know for myself, and I expect for you, that Bitcoin is great long term. It's great to hold for years, but like from day to day, when you want to buy stuff, you need you need the dollar. I need the pound. So 
that idea of uh, eliminating the dollar in the short term, I don't see happening. I do agree with this point, though, as um, there becomes wider access to stable coins or digital dollars globally, and they become more accepted, you could see other sovereign currencies fail quite quickly. We will see other sovereign yeah. currencies fail. If you look historically, you get these clusters of sovereign currency crises, whether it's the Asian financial crisis, uh, the Latin American financial crisis, the post-Soviet era. These aren't foreign to us. Everybody knows someone that's you know lost money in, in Argentine default, or the Greek default, mm -hmm. or Cyprus, or when you know there was hyperinflation in uh, in Eastern Europe, right? And this is all within living memory. We're not going back to Weimar here, right? Mm -hmm. These things happen frequently, <laughs> um, and they tend to happen when uh, sovereign debt levels are are pretty high. And guess what? They're very high. Uh, and so we spent a lot of time bellyaching about the U.S. and you know the unsustainable level of debt here. Um, and how we're going to service that, and are we going to have an inflationary default or anything like that? But it's the rest of the world that ought to be worried. It's already happening. Look at the Turkish lira. I, know. I mean, Turkey is a middle income. It's a regional hegemon. I mean, Turkey is a powerful nation. G twenty nation. Yeah, I mean, Turkey is is strategically an incredibly important nation. They have a mature economy. They have a large population, a huge labor force. They matter. They they're a power broker in the region, and their currency is inflating away to absolutely nothing. So you know it can happen anywhere. Mm -hmm. I mean, Argentina has been was a, a wealthy nation, right? The Argentine quality standard of living in 1900 was pretty high, relatively speaking, right? Um, you know, like Lebanon was a middle income nation. Now they're living in absolute poverty, and the currency is basically worthless, and it's a total catastrophe. But you know, these things happen. They definitely happen, especially post 1971. Um, and so, you know, are we going to have fewer sovereign defaults going forward, or more? I would, I would wager more, especially given that there just has been a global creation of debt and credit, and that has to resolve some way. And uh, and so it's not the dollar I'd be worried about. It'd be it's everything else. Yeah, I, th I think he said to me he he, he predicts 120 uh, currencies will fail. He he thinks that the only survivors would be probably dollar, euro, pound, yen. Yeah, 120 is basically all of them. <laughs> yeah, it's basically well, it's all you know, it's outside the top like six or seven top currencies. But I'm I'm like questioning how does it happen because if the Turkish lira fails, they could just you know. Knock a few zeros off and start again. Exactly what they've done in Venezuela. But do, yeah. do you have scenarios where other countries like dollarize on a stable coin? Is that a scenario that we see happening? I think it'll happen. No you question. Do. Yeah, I've been expecting it. Right. Crypto dollarization. Crypto dollarization. Yeah, I mean because you know, look at the failure of dollarization historically. So look at Zimbabwe. They had a bit of a dollar. It was fits and starts, and ultimately. The government was able to successfully use the banking sector against its citizens to de-dollarize. Now, what's the difference with the crypto dollarization? Is that you hold your uh, stable coins in your own mobile wallet on your phone. Uh, you don't have to hold your assets with a bank, and so you're insulated from uh, the state weaponizing the banking sector against you. So, because there's this bare asset nature 
of a digital dollar, um, you know, you can successfully dollarize. I think you can more fully and completely exit uh, the financial system in question. Um, and you know, if you look at stable coins, they are proliferated globally. Um, I don't know what uh, Turks are buying right now, for instance, to get away from the lira. I would wager that it's a mixture of gold, dollars, and Bitcoin, mm-hmm. uh, and maybe you know property, other assets like that. But I think a crypto dollarization is more enduring and more successful than a physical, you know, Federal Reserve note-based dollarization. Because of course you have to somehow get those. Do you think it's into the country? Do you think it's also something that comes? It can come from bottom up because uh, just thinking about when I went to Venezuela, it's it's kind of pseudo dollarized without officially being dollarized, but it's pseudo dollarized because people want when you're there, they want your dollar. And, and Cambodia was the same. When I was in Cambodia, people wanted your dollar. It's yeah. Like, will you pay in the dollar? So, do you see it as something that rather than coming top down, it comes bottom up and people just request the dollar and just enforce that? There's catalysts. I think the Cambodian dollarization was kicked off by the UN mission mm-hmm. in Cambodia. But you're right, it's remained uh, semi-dollarized. Venezuela is interesting. It's kind of a melting pot of currencies now, right? I mean, it's five, really. The, what, what? <laughs> well, okay, it's four, mate, where you can dismiss the petro because it just right. was a complete failure. But it is the Bolivar, which um, obviously is an absolute shit show. It's Bitcoin. It is uh, the Colombian peso, right? And it is what was the fourth one? I mean, I also heard that in some more remote parts of the country, people use actual granules of gold tr- to transact with because there is a gold extraction industry. Interesting. And so you know, you actually get some <laughs> remonetization of gold. Interesting. But there have been bottom-up dollarizations. My favorite one is Ecuador in two thousand two thousand one, I believe. Uh, and that was, uh, you know, most dollarizations are top down, and it's effectively a desperate central bank says, okay, we're just going to peg our currency to the dollar or just adopt the dollar officially uh, to arrest uh, an inflation, which is delegitimizing them, right? Because they don't want a revolution, they don't want to, you know, be chased out of office. Um, but in the case of Ecuador, it was more spontaneous, and uh, there's a good paper uh, by Larry White about this. Um, Effectively, you know, talking about how people can force the hand of the government. And now compare the world of today to the world of 2000. The world of today is one where, you know, most, most people worldwide probably have smartphones, they have access to the internet, and they have probably have a crypto brokerage locally that's either a peer to peer one, which is everywhere, or, you know, more sophisticated, centralized one. And through that, they can get access to digital dollars. Or really any digital asset they want, so it's a much more frictionless world in terms of engaging in currency substitution, and that's a much more dangerous world for sovereigns with unstable currencies. So I think under the old model, you might have a slow currency failure because people couldn't actually meaningfully divest from the currency because they had their assets in the bank; they can't get them out of the bank. But now I think your ability to divest is just faster and more aggressive. And so it'll take some of these central bankers by surprise that um, you know they're trained to think under the old model, but under this new model where maybe 200 million people have access to cryptocurrency and you know ver- you know or already own cryptocurrency and multiples more have direct access to it should they want it, 
That's a more aggressive and dangerous world. It's a, it's a more difficult world of currency competition. Uh, and, and I think you know, central bankers in Turkey, for instance, realize that. They see there's a vibrant crypto industry. They see that as probably part of the reason the layer is, is collapsing so quickly. Well, Erdogan's raised, you know, he's declared war on cryptocurrencies. But, but the, in, the interesting part of it for me and Nick is that uh, I've, I've thought a lot, long and hard about a Bitcoin standard. And one of the interesting things about Bitcoin standard is completely individual. You can, I live on a Bitcoin standard now. Me and Danny were talking about it earlier in that um, yeah, majority of my wealth is in Bitcoin. I still hold pounds. I still hold dollars when I need them. But essentially speaking, every time I have to make a lumpy purchase, something of significance, I do that through the lens of Bitcoin. So the great example right now is I'm looking to move house at the moment. Historically, if I bought a house, I'd want to put down the biggest deposit possible. Now I want to put down the smallest deposit possible with the longest mortgage possible and the lowest interest rate. And I want to hold in Bitcoin because I know it will outperform over that 25, 30 years of a mortgage. So I'm on a Bitcoin standard because I think like that. You know, MicroStrategy is on a Bitcoin standard. But with a dollar, you can personally dollarize now. If you've got access to stable coins, even if you're in Turkey, you can choose, I assume, you can choose to convert your Turkish lira immediately to a digital dollar if you want. And you can live on that dollarized standard without the country being dollarized, which, which, which is why I'm interested in this kind of bottom-up approach. That's what I think is, is going to be more popular. And um, you know, we have portfolio companies that are do, you know, doing brokerage for folks in Africa, for instance. And um, you know, the, the most popular uh, you know, transactional digital asset for folks in Nigeria, for instance, it's probably not even Bitcoin at this point. It's probably something like a, a tether stablecoin, believe it or not. Interesting. On a low fee blockchain. Tron. Yeah, I mean, I, that's that's honestly what I've anecdotally heard. Um, believe heard it or it not. So you know, there's something. <laughs> Just as someone's right. It's a brave new world out there. I mean, uh, you know, maybe Tron is sufficient for for that use case. Um, that doesn't mean that you know there's no affinity for Bitcoin. There's no Bitcoin usage. There certainly is a lot, but um, for your cross-border uh, remittance, for if you have an import business and you know the other your suppliers accept stable coins, things like that, it probably makes more sense to use a dollar-based stable coin than the Nair in in many cases. I haven't spent enough time looking at stable coins. I've been so focused on Bitcoin. I, do you know? Interestingly, I've never really owned a stable coin. I've never bought Tether, never bought USDC. I've just never, never bought or used uh, used one. Uh, I've had them given to me or put into wallets before. Um, but my limited understanding is that the Ethereum bloat makes uh, and the gas fees makes using it as a digital dollar quite problematic. Whereas that's where you uh, talked about Tron. But how do, are there other ways to get a you know a low fee? Uh, digital dollar can it be done on Bitcoin? I know it's been talked about, but I've not looked into it. Yeah, I mean Tether uh, began on, on Bitcoin Omni. on the Omni protocol. Only a couple billion, really, I think, were ever issued on Bitcoin. Which is funny that people connect Tether to Bitcoin so much because Tether is mostly issued on other blockchains, of course. Yeah. Um, but you know, you can put a payload of data in virtually any public blockchain, and and that can be the stablecoin. It just has to be a claim that. You know the administrator can interpret, um, and and you know that that that's a trivial thing. So you have it. You have stablecoins issued all over the place now on not just Ethereum, uh, and it's increasingly moving beyond Ethereum too, due to the fees. Um, you've got Tron. You have stablecoins in Algorand, on Solana, uh, on Avalanche. It's just all over the place now. 
Uh, and you know what's actually happening is the notion of a stablecoin is being abstracted away from the underlying blockchain infrastructure. And so people reason about Tether or USDC without knowing or maybe even caring about what underlying blockchain it's transacting on. That's you know that's an engineering question they maybe don't care about. Uh, and and so you know we're we're going to talk less about like making an Ethereum transaction. And we're going to talk more about you know a USDC transaction, right? It's a controversial question. Uh, hmm, how do I word this? Do, if 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 you're of the belief of a future world whereby it isn't just Bitcoin, which I am, which is a world of Bitcoin and digital fiat currencies, which are, uh, as I said before, I, I see a short-term need for. Uh, fiat currencies because you need stability in pricing and Bitcoin isn't a unit of account now and you need long-term Bitcoin for uh, wealth protection and you know growing your wealth. Does there need to be an acceptance therefore of alternative protocols or could this all still be done on Bitcoin? And are these, you know, these protocols do have uh, you know, fair criticism for centralization and, uh, and such, but or have you become more accepting of these protocols? I mean, uh, I just have to live in the world as it is, right? Yeah. Uh, and that's a world where there's a number of other blockchains, and certainly many of those uses are pretty valid, uh, including, for instance, stablecoins, which of, of course you know could be could be done on Bitcoin, but there's reasons why you might want that trade-off uh, of convenience in exchange for more centralization. Uh, so you know, I mean, that uh, that's I think absolutely valid. Uh, am I sort of allocating my personal portfolio to these alternative layer ones? Like, definitely not. Um, you know, I, it's not clear to me why or how they would sort of accrue long-term value. Uh, but you know, um, are are these you know valid places to build things on? Unquestionably, and there's hundreds of billions of dollars of liquidity on these other blockchains. Um, have any of them come close to? You know, competing with Bitcoin uh, in a monetary context, arguably not, because they're not even really aware of the game that they're playing. Uh, they think that it's all about tweaking the monetary policy to make it attractive, when in fact it's about keeping your hands off the monetary policy to make it attractive. They don't seem to have understood that just yet. Um, but uh, certainly, you know, there's abundant uh, you know block space for alternative public blockchains and. There's, you know, interesting and important things being built there. No question about that. So it feels like uh, if we start thinking ahead, maybe the next you know, few years, decade, possibly next couple of decades, that at a time where there's a massive loss in trust in government, uh, and that is not just within world of Bitcoin. It's like even my no coiner friends who still don't buy Bitcoin are now becoming tired of the bullshit coming from government. Um, at a time where we've got exponential technologies, we've got growth in crypto. I say crypto because we are talking about stable coins. And uh, an increasing lens on the government because of the wild inflation numbers we've seen. Um, and I know there's been wild inflation numbers years ago, but we didn't have an alternative apart from gold. Uh, I expect, therefore, the next 5, 10, 20 years that we're going to see a, a massive both currency competition but currency wars. Something Balaji talked a lot about. And it, you know, it's not just state currency versus state currency, and it's not just state currencies versus Bitcoin. 
its state currencies versus Bitcoin and the full cohort of other alternative uh, crypto assets. Um, and that's kind of the reality we live in. Um, and, that, and that entails a lot of you know, nonsensical asset creation. I mean, everyone is a currency entrepreneur now, right? Uh, and, and that's you know, normally a pretty bad thing uh, to create a startup uh, currency. Um, but uh, yeah, the, you know, that's sort of what we have to accept. I think it goes with the territory. Well, Danny earlier reminded me of our conversation when we did our whole series about uh, the, kind of that beginner's guide to Bitcoin and you and I covered altcoins and uh, I can't remember the exact words, but Danny, are you mic'd up? Can you remind me what he said? It was that new money should be, shouldn't go around every day. It shouldn't be easy to create new money. Yeah, like Bitcoin. You talked about how Bitcoin had been through a hell of a journey. Like he shouldn't have, I think your words right, he shouldn't have survived everything he's been up against, but it did. And that's the point. Like money should be hard to create. Yeah, it shouldn't be a trivial thing to create a new currency. That's it. Yeah. Because you're trying to create a new system of trust. I mean, how can you possibly contrive that out of thin air? I mean, Satoshi had to do so much to win our trust, right? Uh, you know, everything open source, everything with fair warning, full disclosure, um, you know, create the most auditable monetary system ever and then leave the project. What other, you know, what other, uh, you know, digital asset or cryptocurrency has done even one-tenth the thing, the things that Satoshi did to convince us that this was a legitimate and fair thing. I mean, I haven't seen anything remotely approximating that. I see a lot of breaches of user trust, and I see a lot of extraction of uh, you know wealth from people that put their trust in the creators of these alternative cryptocurrencies. I see a lot of intervention. I see a lot of tweaking of the money supply and constant changes to the monetary policy. I see a lot of centralization. Uh, and it's not just centralization is bad for the sake of centralization. It's because it allows these protocol elites to monetize their advantage, to monetize their proximity to the protocol at the expense of the users. And there's plenty of examples I can give there, but you know, all of the inflationary negative dynamics we hate about fiat currencies, they're present times a thousand in sort of the altcoin space. There's no question about that. Can you give these examples, or at least one? I want to hear it. There's so I mean there's so much, but um, you know just the very notion of a um, you know initial sale to sort of venture capitalists, right? Which I am one, of course. So you know, um, no one's perfect, um, but the the notion of you know selling a share of an asset that you believe will be a global monetary good that everyone will one day use, right? If you really believe this, and that's sort of the inherent claim in any new cryptocurrencies that it will become globally important, right? That's the return profile you have to expect to believe these things. Selling, you know, 10 or 20% to a venture capital firm or a hedge fund or, you know, a wealthy individual and 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 believing that that you know, doesn't delegitimize the project as it grows into something worth hundreds of billions of dollars is is insane, right? Um, Are you talking about Worldcoin? It, any, literally anyone, any single one that yeah. is venture backed, right? Yeah. The only sort of authentic way to issue a new currency out of thin air is to make it costly to obtain. And, right? and are you considering every protocol and every token here as essentially a form of money? 
Well, some of them are just pseudo equity, right? Yeah. Some of them are like, oh, you get network equity and you know some smart contract that spits off cash flows, and you know maybe I get the token entitles me to a claim on that. So you do have to assert that taxonomy, but your generalized layer ones. You know, they all aspire to be money. That's not a secret. That's what they tell their investors. That's mm-hmm. what everyone's buying into. That theory, hey, this thing could flip in Bitcoin or could match Ethereum, right? That's that's the claim. And the idea that you know some Silicon Valley firm can own ten percent of the world's future wealth, uh, were that to occur, of course it won't occur, but um, is preposterous. So that's sort of the original sin, frankly. Yeah, I've taken a, quite a bit of an issue recently with uh, this co-opting of Web3 to now mean blockchains. Uh, Web3 was, this has been long discussed uh, back when I had my agency over a decade ago. Web3 was discussed before Bitcoin even existed, but now it's been co-opted as a world of tokens and I've seen a very prominent uh, investors talk about this. Chris Dixon from A16Z is very prominent talking about this at the moment. And I just feel like there's a co-opting of this for their own personal interests. And it it doesn't feel like this is the decentralized version of the web that was uh, predicted. Yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone knows what Web3 means, uh, frankly. I, I don't know if we're going to be talking about Web3 in a decade's time. To the extent it means you know, having more ownership over your online self and and Having uh, you know genuine digital property, and maybe using a public key infrastructure to sort of engage with digital systems, online systems, as opposed to surrendering your identity and your credentials to a third party. There's something to be said for that. Mm-hmm, I agree. None of that implies or requires token of any sort. That's a you know that's a non sequitur, right? Um, so I, I I don't know exactly what uh, what it is that Web three is, frankly. <laughs> well, Web two was more uh, retrospective. Uh, it was you know during a period of time where you know, devs were working on ideas, developing a more interactive web. You went from static HTML pages to interactive pages using CSS. So when people did searches, it would come up with the results. And it, like it was more retrospective. It was like okay, yeah, this is what Web two is. We've created this stuff. Great. I feel like there is a, an attempt by people with an interest in their investments, perhaps because I don't know. I mean, Chris Dixon threw Facebook under the bus the other day in A16Z investment as part of his explanation of you know, why he believes in you know, Web3. I th- just feel like it's an attempt to shoehorn a narrative to where they want to put money, where they can see returns. The, the big issue I've had with these, and you know, I steal this line essentially from Jill Carter. Well, she's changed her name now, she's got married, hasn't she? Yeah. Formerly Jill Carson. Jill Carson, I can't remember. But Jill Carson, when I met her years ago, she said one of the great things is they get to do their seed round and IPO at the same time, but actually they're going to do an IPO before they've had product market fit, which to me is fucking ridiculous. Yeah, that's sort of why we have uh, securities regulations in this country. But um, yeah, I, the, that is the interesting thing about Web3 to me is like aspiring actually looking back to sort of the earlier days of the internet when people ran their own email servers and things like that, right? And so it was more genuinely decentralized, right? Um, and uh, kind of uh, trying to recreate that, you know, in, in the kind of the same way that sort of Bitcoin is trying to recreate the gold standard. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think Web3 is also kind of backwards looking in some respect of aspiring to this day, these days before Silicon Valley tech firms controlled absolutely everything. Um, and trying to reassert some personal autonomy, but yeah, none of that implies a token. But it's just that 
we live in this world where you can't just have an idea and support an idea. The idea has to be monetized, and uh, and so every you know you, you can't just be enthusiastic about a concept. Now it has to be connected to an investment thesis too. Yeah. Before we carry on with the interview, I do have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Sportsbet.io, the very best place for online gaming because they're badasses and they accept Bitcoin. Now the football season started. It's been a strange start to the season. Tottenham started well, but obviously they fell apart. Typical Tottenham stuff and Liverpool are crushing it, but it's a bit tied up there. Other teams are doing very well. Now listen... With Sportsbet, you've got everything covered. Not only do they cover football, but they support tennis, motorsports, US sports. They even have esports. And for new customers, there is always a range of promotions available. If you want to find out more, then please head over to sportsbet.io, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O. Next up, we have Exodus Wallet, who I am using as my mobile and desktop wallet for my Bitcoin. Now, as you know, UX is super important to me. So when the Exodus team reached out to me, I spent some time playing with the app, and you know what, they crushed it. The experience is amazing, which is why I'm happy to recommend it to you, my friends, and my family. Now, the Exodus desktop gives you a way to secure and manage your Bitcoin in one beautiful application. And with their mobile wallet, you can send and receive safely using a QR code or address known that Exodus automatically checks all addresses for errors. So make sure you check it out yourself at exodus.com or search for Exodus in the Google or Apple app stores. Next up, it's Casa, the safest way to store your Bitcoin. Now listen, forgotten passwords, SIM swaps and phishing attacks, there are just too many ways for you to have your Bitcoin lost or stolen. But with Casa, you never have to worry about your Bitcoin again. Because with Casa's multi-sig wallet, you can take custody of your Bitcoin, but only move by signing transactions from multiple wallets. Ones that you get to distribute into different locations, which is going to protect you from a range of mistakes, errors and vulnerabilities. Now, if you want to find out more, you can reach out to me over email or drop me a DM on Twitter. I've been a customer for over a year and I'm happy to answer any of your questions. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Okay, so trying to think a little bit longer term, Nick, and I'm sure you do think about these things, but uh, like I say, I, I mean, maybe you thought this stuff would happen uh, I, I always felt like Bitcoin would be an asset and be something to invest in. I, I, I just didn't see the El Salvador situation happening. Certainly not now, maybe you know, years ahead. But trying to think the uh, you know, next five, ten years of the role of Bitcoin and how it's going to be changing, you know, we, we do have a, a situation where Bitcoin is starting to appear to challenge gold. There are a lot of gold bugs who are becoming maybe gold bugs and Bitcoiners or some completely flipping. Michael Saylor is... You know, he considers gold the enemy of Bitcoin. Um, we are at a time of kind of weird inflation numbers whereby we've been told a certain inflation number, but actually inflation is very subjective to yourself. And mm-hmm. most people are, are expecting or talking about they're in a situation of double, uh, double figure inflation. Where do you see the evolving role of Bitcoin over the next kind of five, 10 years? I know that's a big question. Yeah, I want to address the gold thing first. Yeah, do it. So I find it preposterous the Bitcoiners are hostile to gold. I know you have a Peter Schiff photo right there, but yeah, Peter Schiff it. is our greatest ally. Okay, you think a hundred percent? Okay, a hundred percent. And I, I am honestly aggrieved when Grayscale, you know, they run their drop gold campaign. That's insane. The same set of ideas that causes a man to embrace gold. 
cause them to entertain the idea of Bitcoin. Oh no, I agree with that. I mean, we, you know, uh, I again, I keep bringing up my brother because we talk so much, but he constantly refers to Peter Schiff and sends me his tweets, and he keeps saying to me, "We agree on the problem." To the point where I keep retweeting Peter Schiff and saying, "We agree on the problem." Yeah, I mean, we we have slightly different opinions regarding the solution, but the vastly more important thing is to diagnose the illness, right? Um, and then you know the precise course of treatment is like, okay, well, do you want to take you know this antibiotic or that antibiotic? They do the same thing, right? They do the exact same thing. Gold is proto Bitcoin. I mean, <laughs> gold is analog Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin is digital gold. They're two sides of the exact same coin. If you like gold, you're skeptical of the state's ability to manage its currency. It's the same with Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Um, gold's not going to cease to exist. Gold has this enormous cultural salience. Bitcoin will not demonetize gold. I mean, maybe you know some of the gold that was in ETFs, maybe that'll go into a Bitcoin ETF eventually. But gold will never cease to exist. I mean, it's a it's an element which has remarkable properties, like truly remarkable. Um, and and you know you can't just scrub that from our collective memory. And I don't really own any gold, to be clear. But the important thing is that people are skeptical of the monetary discretion of governments, and they look to store their assets in a pure monetary medium that is outside the control of the state. And you know how precisely you choose to express that is a, a kind of an afterthought. Uh, but you know, just getting people on that same page is the difficult thing. And um, you know, here's another instance where um, you know gold has these parallels with Bitcoin. So you know, when we were debating the gold standard, whether we should return to it, there was a huge debate among Austrians about, uh, and and frankly, you know, their their ideological opponents about the costs of a gold standard, right? And it was alleged that a gold standard would be too costly from a societal resource perspective, right? I think Milton Friedman wrote something like a gold standard would cost 2% of GDP a year just to maintain and extract the gold. Now, that estimate, I think, was erroneous. But the point was, it was considered to be exorbitant to have this inert you know, uh, uh, metal effectively being monetized and being a, a medium to store wealth when we could just simply create paper currency, right? And once you realize that the paper currency is incredibly costly in its own way, in a different and more oblique way, once you have that realization, you understand why it's important to store uh, human wealth and time and ingenuity in this non-state monetary device. And so, of course, you know, there's the same debate that happens with Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin is too costly from a resource perspective to maintain. Why do we need it? We can just have paper currency. Like, why do we, who cares about Bitcoin? We don't need that. We don't need to spend 30 basis points of global energy on this thing, uh, you know? Well, Nick, specifically in the UK, referring to our chancellor, uh, who has coined the term Bitcoin for the potential CBDC of the UK, it's why do we need Bitcoin? We have Bitcoin. Right. Yeah. So why do you need it? We have CBDCs. We have this wonderful government money which costs nothing, right? It's energy efficient. It costs nothing until it costs you everything. Yeah. Right. So, you know, that's the Bitcoin and gold are so close on sort of the ideological family tree. They're like apes and gibbons, you know, they're right next to each other. Um, and whereas, you know, 
sovereign currency is like in a completely different genus, you know. Um, so, you know, I, I I find it so disappointing when Bitcoiners go to war with with you know gold enthusiasts because they're there for the exact same right reasons. And honestly, they have valid re- there are valid reasons to prefer gold to Bitcoin, no question about it. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a physical, you know, physically instantiated thing. Like this, <laughs> of course, I think Bitcoin vastly outperforms it in the important domains: transmissibility, auditability, right? Uh, obviously, it's more fractionalizable. It's kind of easier to store in many respects. You know, there's a lot of good stuff to say about Bitcoin. I, I don't have to <laughs> yeah, I, sing its praises. I, have, I haven't got rid of my record collection, but I don't travel with. I travel with Spotify. Yeah. Um, gold just has a lot of momentum. You're not going to be able yep. to, you know, governments own it uh, a lot of a lot of gold, um, and and you're not going to be able to undo that overnight. No, but my expectation is this: like a transitionary phase that might be multi-decade. I mean, you are of the belief that governments will eventually adopt Bitcoin beyond El Salvador alongside gold. Of maybe. course, yeah. And here's my proposal to a government official that's listening. Let's go. You should just simply buy the equivalent amount of Bitcoin that you hold in your official gold reserves. It's so simple, right? Because all you need to do is hedge against a, a world where there's a Bitcoin standard, right? And you want to be no worse off, right, in that world than you are in today's world where gold is kind of the de facto monetary good the governments hold that's not US treasuries or foreign currency. And actually, central banks have been buying a lot of gold, if you look. Um, because they're kind of fearful of, of uh, well, they buy all kinds of stuff, but they're fearful of the dollar depreciation. So, how do you get from today's world, which is where governments hold a lot of gold, <coughs> to tomorrow's world, where maybe there's Bitcoin and gold side by side as the official uh, non-state reserve assets of choice? Well, you just simply work out what percentage of all the gold you own, and then you just buy the equivalent amount of Bitcoin, right? So, there's around 200,000 tons of gold that have been mined, give or take, above-ground gold. The United States has about 8,000 tons of gold. Allegedly. Uh, yeah, we need, we, there's no way to do proof reserve on gold, no. let me tell you. So they claim to have 8,000 tons of gold, which is the most of any government. So how do they become no worse off under the Bitcoin regime, as compared with the current regime, where gold is demonetized, but it's still important. Well, you simply just work out the ratio, right? So um, that's four percent of all the gold they have. It's a lot greater percentage of all the official gold, but it's you know all of the gold matters. So what's four percent of all the bitcoins? Six hundred. No, what Close. Is it? It's about seven hundred thousand, eight hundred and forty thousand, I believe, 000. of twenty-one million. We're just yeah, gonna, two ten times four. Yeah. So um, you know, it's fewer than a million bitcoins for the U.S. to tread water to stay just where they are. Um, and what would that cost them to acquire? A, a less than fifty billion dollars. Now that's a pretty cheap option to get into the future if you want to be no worse off than you were under the current model. Where you still have this enormous gold reserve. What's the circulating supply? I thought it's around two million Bitcoin right now. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's um, maybe four million Bitcoin that are kind of lost or inaccessible yeah. in a certain way. But that's your like liquid circulating supplies. Yeah, but you know, the thing is, is that 
even the illiquid supply matters because if the price goes up enough, that will induce people to bring their cold storage back online yeah. and make it market relevant once again. So you really need to determine what's truly, truly lost, you know, um, and you know that's probably three to four million bitcoins. Why, why do you think uh, governments are reticent to start accumulating? Well, it's probably a double question: reticent to start accumulating Bitcoin, or do you think some already are? Yeah, they're reticent to tell us about it. Yeah, because for the duration of the time that you're accumulating Bitcoin, you're not going to be public about it. That'll just make your cost basis much higher. Uh-huh. So you know what a sailor should have done would have been to secretly acquire all his bitcoins. He would have been able to do it much more cheaply. So if I'm uh, you know the Singaporean uh, you know sovereign wealth fund or something, I'm not broadcasting that uh, I'm acquiring bitcoin. I don't know if they are. To be clear, they're probably not. But um, any government that is acting on a decades-long time frame and is uh, you know secretly hedging their exposure by getting access to bitcoin. In whatever method, they have no incentive to talk about it. So we'll only really learn after the fact. Um, so it'll be a secret. But do you think it's happening? I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Um, there's other nations that kind of have official relationships with Bitcoin, aside from El Salvador. El Salvador was not the first. It's just that the other nations are pariah nations, right? North Korea. It's not a secret at all that. Um, you know, the North Korean uh, state-sanctioned hackers were behind the hacks of a lot of crypto exchanges. That's a that's a cost-effective way to get Bitcoin, right? It's not a secret that uh, you know the Venezuelan regime uh, confiscated people's ASICs and the state secret police are mining the Bitcoin, or that uh, the Iranian central bank they even put out a specific missive about um, you know Bitcoin reserves, Bitcoin-denominated trade, and things like that. All those states are excluded from the financial system, and so they have a strong incentive to get this alternative transactional medium and to, to get these reserves, which can't be seized or confiscated. You know, if you look at uh, uh, Afghanistan, when the Taliban took over, their reserves, uh, their dollar reserves, were inaccessible to them. So, it's no secret that sort of autocrats and despots, you know, the world over, it's not a surprise that they should want. Uh, you know this 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 monetary system, these monetary units that can't just be turned off at the click of a button uh, by the U.S. government. So El Salvador wasn't the first; they were just the first sort of sort of vaguely Western nation to embrace Bitcoin. What do you make of El Salvador? Because it they they are very much becoming the the micro strategy of countries, the first to do this. The you know Bukele is tweeting out. All the Bitcoin memes, they're buying the dips. They are about to issue this bond. Yeah, I, I think Bukele got an enormous personal dividend out of it, which is that now he's known to yep. you know, all these Bitcoiners worldwide. And, and really, just his, his fame skyrocketed as a consequence of doing this, right? So there's a big payoff for him. You know, the question is, you know, will there be a payoff for the Salvadoran people? I think that remains to be seen. I think there's a lot of cynical takes out there in the press about, oh, you know, Chivo was buggy at launch and stuff like that, which is silly. It's like software. Uh, it's like the U.S. government couldn't create a healthcare website. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> and let's be honest about CBDCs. Do we believe that, uh, however they launch or whatever blockchain they choose to use, that will have 100% permanent uptime? They don't even exist yet, right? No. So we're comparing a deployed system 
to something that's theoretical. Of course, the theoretical thing might seem better, but at least you know he gave it a good old college try. Right? I think the uh, Obamacare website analogy is pretty fair. I mean, that's the, <laughs> <laughs> that's the, the most powerful nation on earth. So you know, I think they did well, all things considered, probably. But yeah, I mean, we'll see if there's actually if it's actually creative to the Salvadoran people. I mean, I'm I'm withholding judgment on that front. Yeah. Um, I think uh, you know they're they're certainly smart to diversify their official holdings into Bitcoin. Um, they just have to follow the formula that I laid out for them, and I don't even know if they have any gold. They might they be better do. off. They do. I think it's one point seven tons or one point three tons of gold. Then they're almost undoubtedly better off for the Bitcoin standard than they were under the old regime. Yeah, so it's like seventy eight million dollars in gold. I'm pretty sure Daniel would probably can be able to check that, but. Um, Seven point two tons. Seven point two tons, is it? They're then they're they're killing it in Bitcoin world. So oh, sorry, no, one point three tons. One point three tons. I was correct. I knew that. They have an incentive. So like, yeah, mm. less than a hundred million dollars of gold. I think seventy-eight million dollars. I think it was. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What do you make of the bond, the volcano bonds? Because the game theory of it is kind of interesting. In that, if they if they launch ten consecutive. Bonds, they could potentially take five billion in Bitcoin off the table if half of you know half of each of the billion dollar funds goes into buying Bitcoin. Well, they need to find buyers for the bonds, right? Well, I don't know if the offering was subscribed. I haven't been following it, but I mean, I think uh, Matt Levine's take is basically correct, okay. which is you can get the exposure of the Salvadoran bond just by buying uh, generic Salvadoran debt with the same maturity and by buying Bitcoin. And that exposure will be more efficient than if you do it through the product of the bond, the Bitcoin bond. Yeah. So there's alternative ways to get that exact same financial risk if you want it, as opposed to buying the structured product that Bukele is offering. Um, and you know the only difference is that you can buy the Bitcoin bond on Bitfinex, and you can do it can be a crypto adventure, and you can get your um, Residency in, in El Salvador by doing that. Yeah, but from a financial product perspective, frankly, it's inferior. I hate to say it, um, but you know, at least it's creative. Do, do you think? Um, do you think Bitcoiners are being objective enough about Bukele and using enough of a critical lens? Like I've obviously met him and interviewed him, and uh, feel like personally, I perhaps haven't. Uh, been objective enough about him, or critical enough, or cautious enough with regards to him. And the reason I asked for this is, we had a kind of rug pull from Elon Musk at one point, where he went right. from hero to zero. He was our Bitcoin guy. He bought one point five billion Bitcoin, and then he did his energy fad rug pull on us, and uh, and then promoted shitcoin after shitcoin. <laughs> uh, there, I, I I wonder if there is a short-term risk to Bitcoin in the Bikadi situation perhaps going south and that is a reputational issue for Bitcoin but is used by international institutions to attack Bitcoin. Bitcoin is money for enemies, Peter. I know. I know. We have to acknowledge that evil people will use Bitcoin. I'm not I saying Bukele is evil, but we know that the worst people on earth use Bitcoin. Disproportionately, probably. Yeah. I mean, they use the dollar too, right? That didn't delegitimize the dollar. The best monetary network is the network that doesn't exclude anyone, regardless of how odious they are. Um, so, you know, I that, that, that's not what I'm asking, though. Oh yeah, there is something to what you're saying. I mean, I think you've been 
fair in your interactions with Boo Kelly. Um, I very briefly interviewed him. I tried to be fair, um, not overly sycophantic. Um, that's been the accusation, but people will use anything they can against us. They'll accuse us of anything. Um, I, I mean, I don't even know if he's strictly considered a dictator yet. I mean, he jokes about it. I don't know what the definition is. <laughs> hmm. That's, it's funny you should say that because I asked him that in the interview. If he was a dictator. Yeah, and he said, well, what is a dictator? And I was like, oh, funny that I actually have the uh, definition here and what, I read it out to him. Merriam-Webster Dictionary. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was the Cambridge Dictionary. Uh, but uh, I think that that's uh, to be proven longer term. That comes down to what happens in the next election. Yada, yada. But, all, all kinds of awful people use Bitcoin. Um, and as I said before, you know, pariah nation states that conduct atrocities use Bitcoin, have Bitcoin, are mining Bitcoin, are yeah. obtaining Bitcoin. Bukele is certainly not as far on the authoritarian spectrum as Kim Jong Un yeah. or Maduro. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a you know, reality is messy, right? We don't get to choose who adopts Bitcoin. Certainly. The countries and individuals that benefit the most from the dollar uh, institutional system are not going to be the first ones to adopt Bitcoin. And it was um, Peter Van Valkenburg's Senate testimony where he eloquently put, and I won't do the same, but he said for every, you know, we talk about criminals using Bitcoin, and for every criminal who does, let's also talk about you know, a person in. I don't know, uh, Belarus, where who's fighting against Lukashenko is using it to you know, usurp the state so they can actually be paid and protest. And let's talk about people in Nigeria, and let's talk about people who don't have access to bank accounts. So he, he kind of tried to give that balance when he gave his Senate testimony. Yeah, Bitcoin, it, it works to the benefit of the excluded, right? Yeah. And uh, you know, just literally look at the data. Look at the chain analysis adoption data. What are the countries with the high per capita penetration? Nigeria, Vietnam, India, Colombia, Venezuela, Ukraine, other parts of Southern Africa, uh, Eastern Europe, Southeast Asia, right, uh, Latin America. These are not, you know, your centers of global commerce necessarily. Um, but you know, you can. This channel analysis publishes this data, right? It's it's pretty pretty evident. Um, it's the global South that is disproportionately adopting Bitcoin. So you know, it's no wonder that uh, you know the Bank of England and the Fed don't understand this thing. It's not even strictly for them. You know, you benefit from the established system. You have no incentive or desire to seek an alternative. But look where this thing is actually being used uh, on a per capita basis. Okay, let's talk about hyperbitcoinization because it is a uh, it is a theory a lot of bitcoiners talk about. Uh, I think it was Pierre Rochard wrote about it on Nakamoto Institute. It's uh, something that comes up a lot as a given. People don't talk about if we hyper-Bitcoinize, it's when we hyper-Bitcoinize. I know you're not entirely convinced. Uh, I want to talk about it with you because I like the fact that you're not entirely convinced. Uh, can, can we try and come up with a definition of what we might agree on what hyperbitcoinization is like we tried to do it earlier my my loose attempt was to say uh, perhaps it's a, a scenario where within a country it is the only currency you have would might be a scenario others might say it's a scenario where it's a stable global currency and perhaps a number of nations I, I don't know how to define exactly what it is 
Yeah, I mean, uh, I I obviously remember reading all the Nakamoto Institute stuff, and it was it was pretty entertaining. Um, I'm not even sure it's Pierre Richard that wrote that one. Was it Daniel? It might have been Daniel Krawitz. Yeah, yeah, and uh, mm. I, I it was a fun article. I just I'm not sure it, it was intended, you know, seriously. I mean, I don't know if it was written with a straight face, right? The Nakamoto Institute stuff was kind of like, you know, I, like parody and reality. You know, it it, it it was fun, you know, thought-provoking stuff. But it's not necessarily, oh, this is a prediction of specifically what I think will happen. Right? But some of it did. The speculative attack has become true. Right. So yeah, there's. I don't. I think we're maybe being we're sort of asking too much of the authors of that piece. If we are treating it as doctrine, um, because maybe it wasn't intended to be, you know, um, a serious assertion, thought-provoking instead. It, yeah, it might have just been like a fun thought experiment. And I, you know, I, I don't know of any economists that advance a theory of hyperbitcoinization, whatever it means. I think it's probably a play on hyperinflation. Hyperbitcoinization is the inflection point at which Bitcoin becomes the default value system of the world. Okay, so that's more of a unit of account story. Yeah, that's Bitcoin magazine. So that, that's when you re-denominate everything in Satoshi's. Do I think that's ever going to happen? Absolutely not. Because it, it's always volatile against another currency. There's it, always exchange rates. It's kind of volatile by design. Um, it, Bitcoin is perfectly inelastic from a supply perspective, which means that its volatility will not attenuate, most likely. It um, is very rigid from a supply standpoint. That's what we like about it. So it's a, a blessing and a curse, or it's a poison chalice. So uh, you know, Bitcoin can be incredibly useful and important and influential and so on, without being the unit of account. What we're seeing right now, as I t- said, talked about earlier, is Bitcoin being a collateral type which powers uh, an established unit of account. Like the USD, but you can, of course, you know, with any of these algorithmic systems, determine any unit of account you like. You know, uh, it doesn't have to be indexed to the dollar. Um, there's there's absolutely stable coins that have kind of arbitrary unit of accounts. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one I'm, I can't think of right now. It might be Rye, which is you know started at. I want to say three three point one four dollars, and it just kind of floats along. So it's not indexed to the dollar, but it is intended to be stable, right? Mm-hmm. So that's sort of the beauty of uh, these programmable, configurable systems: is you can determine any unit of account and then create a system which sort of tracks that. And maybe dollars aren't the best one. Maybe people will want to trade goods in an index that tracks property prices or commodity prices. Um, but for now, do- dollars are the dominant one. And if you look within the crypto space, dollars are the absolutely the dominant unit of account. A few years ago, Bitcoin was, uh, you know, it was the the currency that you denominated your altcoins in. Right? You would say like this thing is three hundred yep. sats or four hundred sats or whatever. That's not really the case today, and that's mm-hmm. okay. You know, it's not even strictly the dominant medium of exchange in its own industry. And it's not even strictly the dominant unit of account. It definitely isn't in its own industry. So how can we expect that to externalize and, and 
you know, if it can't even conquer the crypto space, right? And that's not me being, you know, a pessimist, or it's just being realistic. How do we expect global trade flows to be re-denominated in Satoshis if people won't even trade on exchanges in Satoshis? So you think the idea of people pricing oil in Bitcoin is unlikely, long way off? I think Bitcoin could and will be traded for oil, but that doesn't mean it'll be priced in Bitcoin terms. So do you think a more useful term is, or topic to talk about rather than hyper-Bitcoinization is more of a Bitcoin standard? Yeah, I think so. And a Bitcoin standard to me is, I, I mean, that's probably, I defer to safety and on the definition of that, but uh, the way you defined it was good, I think, where you know Bitcoin is your dominant savings device. It's the main medium through which you store your wealth and your time. And uh, and then you know you might transact at the edges in other uh, currencies, right? And you might convert it to other things. But it's sort of your dominant um, you know savings device. And a Bitcoin standard is a world I can totally imagine and perceive. And I, I think. You know, is more likely to happen than not at this point. Well, like I say, I think it is happening. Yeah, it is because it's, it's individual. Happening. You get the choice. Like I, I, I said, I do. I believe MicroStrategy are a Bitcoin standard business. I believe El Salvador is heading towards being a Bitcoin standard country. And you and I, you know, there's four people in this room. You and I can be on a Bitcoin standard. They don't have to be, but we can still maintain that. Yeah, hundred percent of the population of this house right now is on a Bitcoin standard, you know. So we're really dominating. I'm this. not sure. Are you, Jeremy? I keep sending you invoices in Bitcoin. Do you? Yeah. You're not having my Bitcoin. hundred <laughs> percent. So this tiny corner of South Florida is fully Bitcoinized. This ten yard area. But I, you know, it's not just the countries. You know, it's just not the El Salvador's and the microstrategies. It's the Tens of millions of people worldwide that spontaneously adopted this thing, mm-hmm. and they're all they're on a Bitcoin center too. And so that's, I'm, not, I'm not sure everyone is. So again, we were talking about this this morning. I think there's a difference between having Bitcoin and being on a Bitcoin standard. So for example, I believe MicroStrategy, especially having spent time with Sailor yesterday, and he explained to me is their business is on a Bitcoin standard, whereas I believe Tesla owns Bitcoin. Well, Bitcoin doesn't care, right? How much of your wealth is in Bitcoin? From the perspective of Bitcoin's monetization, Bitcoin itself is indifferent, right? Of course. But the point being is, like, I think, I think there is Bitcoin, and there's being on a Bitcoin standard, and being on a Bitcoin standard is a choice to you. So it's personal to you how you treat Bitcoin. And what I mean is, I don't think, I think Tesla is on a dollar standard and holds some Bitcoin in its treasury. I believe MicroStrategy is on a Bitcoin standard. Okay, I see the point you're making. Yeah. Um, I think they're two different things. But if if you think about you know Bitcoin's apotheosis, you know where it might end up. Yeah. You know, I think it, it, if it had a trajectory, you know, such that it ended up somewhere similar to where gold is today, that would constitute success, right? And that might be seen as hopelessly conservative by the Bitcoiners. Um, that would only imply one more ten x, which I know would be devastating. Um, but but that would be success. Why so bearish, Nick? Yeah, and you know how do people act, treat gold? Well, they have some gold jewelry, and maybe they all own you know an ETF, and they own dollars, which are kind of like really indirectly backed by gold. Uh, well, not backed by, but you know the U.S. has gold reserves, and you know how do households outside of the U.S. treat gold? Well, they have their gold heirlooms, their sort of family wealth might be stored in gold and you know maybe you give it as a gift you know once in your lifetime when your your daughter gets married or something. Um, and you know 
gold isn't important, but it's not the only asset that they own, right? They own property and stocks and things like that. That would be a good outcome for Bitcoin if it achieves that level of cultural and economic penetration. That'd be a great outcome. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that would mean that everyone would be on a Bitcoin standard, but that's a world that I can completely imagine. Yeah, I feel like it can't it can't have a top though, because if we get a top, then people are like this is the end, and they'll start selling out. Because in the end, I think uh, number go up sometimes is more important to people than the moral implications of a Bitcoin standard. Well, the composition of Bitcoin holders will necessarily change because yeah. the early Bitcoiners will have liquidity needs and they will uh, need to consume, and so they will eventually divest. Right. Uh-huh. They will be spending at a rate that exceeds their new savings ability, especially because the bulk of their savings activity would have been done historically when Bitcoin was appreciating. So the natural progression here is simply that the earliest Bitcoiners progressively divest, and um, you know later adopters come in, and so then the Bitcoin holder base becomes renewed and uh, and changes, and of course that's that's what's happening. You know, there's a lot of early Bitcoiners that currently hold very little or no Bitcoin. When people buy houses with their Bitcoin after a big rally, that's you know early holders divesting and the distribution of ownership changing. Hmm. So the you know the expectations of the earliest investors and the, you know they matter less and less with time is what I'm saying. So the the newer folks may not see it as a failure if Bitcoin. You know, only goes up thirty percent a year. That might be precisely accomplishing their goals, which yep. is wealth preservation. Well, a more consistent, less volatile growth in Bitcoin, I think, is better for Bitcoin. I, you know, I try and imagine it happening and try and think through the scenarios. But then, if that does kind of happen, then I think it ends up breaking itself because that consistent. If you if you had that consistent thirty percent year on year, it's like hold on, we can get a consistent thirty percent year on year. Well, then a lot of people were piling, and then we would see a blow off the top and come back down. So maybe we can never get that stability. Oh, yeah. I mean, the psychological component will always be there with the price action. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, I don't think, uh, uh, you know, a decreased but steadier level of returns uh, delegitimizes Bitcoin. Um, it, it, that, you know, it, that doesn't delegitimize gold. Gold did have these wild swings in the 70s. Right, if you look at that inflationary period, gold increased something like a factor of eight in real terms throughout the seventies as it became a device that people used to escape the dollar. Right, so same thing on a grander scheme. Today, Bitcoin went from zero to something, so the return multiple was enormous. Um, but you know, eventually, it, it'll uh, probably become less less volatile and uh, and just a more quotidian, just normal thing to own. Awesome. I had this whole other section I wanted to go into you, but I think that might end up being a whole show itself. So I think uh, I think that might be a good place to finish it. Okay. I think that was a good chat, Nick. Thanks, Peter. It's good to do it in person, man. I can't believe this is the first one. I know. Well, listen, we're back to uh, touring and trying to do them in person. We'll be in Miami a couple of times a year, so we'll uh, we can get to some deeper subjects another time. But I appreciate you coming on so many times, man. I really appreciate you. It's good to have you as a friend and as a fellow Bitcoiner and as a guest on the show. Yeah, and I have a bone to pick with you. Sam Lynn <laughs> is the most um, the most frequent appearing guest because she had an arranged thing. So she this was, is a fair criticism. She was semi-affiliated with this show. Nick so. is the most regular guest on the show. 
who isn't a uh, scheduled monthly guest. He is the most regular guest on the show. Thank you. I happily accept that. If you'd ever make plaques, you know, in terms of, you know, or trophies. We, 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 we need to make a t-shirt. We should do a t-shirt. We'll do the Nick Carter is the most regular guest on What Bitcoin Did t-shirt. And you know, there's some podcasts that have their own DAOs now. Yeah. Podcasts which all go unnamed as their competitors to this show. Yeah, is that is Bankless? I bet that's Bankless. Bankless is a DAO. What Shitcoin Did. That's what we call that show. <laughs> so... Um, you know, if you ever make one, I mean, no, the pre mine, you should reserve. <laughs> no, there's no pre mine. I want some money off you for my football club, but we'll talk about that another day. But listen, Nick, thank you. Tell people how to find your podcast because we, uh, oh, yeah, I have a, a much smaller, um, but far com- more intelligent, competitive podcast uh, called On the Brink. Um, I think at this point we're actually over the brink, so we might have to <laughs> rename it. Um, but, uh, Yes, you can find that on the podcast websites. All right, man. We'll share it in the show notes. Nick, good to see you, man. Love you, dude. Take care. Thank you. Okay, thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to get in touch, you want to reach out to me, the best thing to do is head over to my Telegram channel or you can hit me up on my email, which is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. And if you want to support the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave me a review. Okay, see you all very, very soon.